Who is Jesus Christ? There is no more important question that you will ever answer than to identify who Jesus Christ is. There's no dispute about the historical facts. We know that the man named Jesus of Nazareth lived 2,000 years ago. There's not only the wealth of testimony in the New Testament from the accounts in the Gospels, the reports and acts of the birth of the church and all of the, the, the apostles who give testimony to the risen Christ. But beyond that, there are secular historians, the Jewish historian Josephus, the Roman historian Tacitus, who was also part of the Roman Senate. Both wrote about Jesus. Both did extensive historical research in the second half of the first century, and, and both coming to conclusions from a secular point of view that, that a man named Jesus lived, that he was baptized by someone named John, that he taught, that he was then executed under Pontius Pilate, who was governor at that time, and that this movement, this mass movement formed after his death that, that gave testimony to the fact that they believed he was risen. And it was the birth of what we would call the church, but they, these secular historians give testimony to the reality of the growth and birth of Christianity. And so we know that the man Jesus lived, that he was among the areas of Judea and Galilee 2,000 years ago. Therefore, it's not a question of whether there was a Jesus. It's really the question of who you identify Jesus as, who you believe he is. Do you see Jesus as merely some historical Jewish rabbi who taught about God and love and human nature or some fanatic who was working to lead the Jewish people to some sort of uprising? Or was he what the Gospels say he claimed? And that is that he was the son of God, that he was literally God in flesh. What you believe about the identity of Jesus Christ is of profound importance. And what we read this morning in the last half of Matthew chapter 1 ties into that identity. During his encounters with others, Jesus saw that question of his identity as paramount. He asked it of the religious leaders in Matthew chapter 22 when he said to them, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they, they answered David. He's in the line of David. They understood that and there was some continued back and forth and it was very clear that, that they did not want to somehow associate this man in front of them with being that Christ, and they were stumped by the back and forth and, and got silent rather than, than give him any acclaim. Jesus asked it of his own followers, asked them about his identity, asked them what, what they had heard others believed about his identity. In Matthew chapter 16, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And his disciples gave some of the suggestions that they had heard. Some say Elijah or Jeremiah or John the Baptist or, or one of the prophets. And Jesus then pressed his own disciples further and said, Who do you say I am? And Peter rightly answers, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This morning, I want us to take this question of the identity of Jesus and tie it into his birth, to his conception, and to the miracle of that conception. These closing verses of Matthew chapter 1 have an enormous bearing on the identity of Jesus Christ. There have been scholars over the years who have 
taken various points of the life of Christ and who have embraced the death and resurrection, but who have somehow said that this, this part of the story is somehow optional. We don't fully have to embrace this. And I'm going to argue this morning that we do, that this is very much a part of the gospel, in fact. The truth of who Jesus is begins here in Matthew chapter 1. The identity of Jesus and his miraculous conception are intertwined. So let me read Matthew 1, beginning in verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did. As the angel of the Lord commanded him, he took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Luke's account of the birth of Jesus Christ, Matthew and Luke are sort of the two complementary accounts. Luke's account seems to be at least mostly from the viewpoint of Mary. We see the angel appear to Mary, and so we're getting her perspective here in Matthew now. He helps us to see things through the eyes of Joseph and, and the angel's appearance to Joseph in a dream. Matthew says that Mary and Joseph were betrothed. They were in a, a premarital state that was more significant, more binding than we would tend to think of engagement. Uh, there had been no sexual activity yet, but the promise to consummate the marriage had been made. And so at this point, the only way to end betrothal is either by divorce or if one does engage in sexual activity outside of that relationship, it is then regarded by the Old Testament law as adultery. So it is that close. Betrothal is, 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 is not just something that is broken off. For Joseph to end this in light of what he has discovered about Mary now being found with child, for him to end this, he can't simply call it off. He must divorce her, and he's got two ways of doing that. He can either make the accusation publicly, perhaps as a way of protecting his own integrity, but that will bring shame to Mary and perhaps even some form of punishment or being ostracized if he brings the accusation out in public, or he is able to, with two witnesses present, to give her a certificate of divorce and keep it very quiet. Verse 19 says, Joseph was a just man. It's interesting because we think of justice as, as good and evil, as doing that which is right. But, but when we understand justice, when we understand biblically what justice is from God's perspective, then we also should understand mercy because we must have mercy with justice. If God only gives us justice, we are lost. We are deservedly condemned. But Joseph is a just man who not only understands right and wrong, but he also understands merciful. And so he chooses then to show mercy to Mary and divorce her with the least amount of attention heaped on her. Verse 20 begins, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her. 
It's from the Holy Spirit. ESV, when it begins, verse 20, says that um, at, as he considered these things, makes it sound like he's sort of still engaged in considering. New American Standard is probably more accurate when he says, but when he had considered this, it's more of a past tense. The, 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 the scenario seems to be he finds that she is with child. He is deliberating over this. He is pondering this. He reaches a decision. He concludes what he is going to do. And then like any good man who has worked through a difficult issue, he goes to bed and he goes to sleep. Uh, and so Joseph goes to sleep, and it is at that point that an angel appears to Joseph in a dream and brings this miraculous truth to him. We often talk about the virgin birth of Jesus, but really the, the emphasis here is on the miraculous conception of Jesus. It is the fact that he is conceived in Mary's womb. We, we know what conception is. The male sperm fertilizes the female egg and creates pregnancy, in this case, as the angel is making clear what, what Joseph already knows, he contributed nothing. Joseph brings nothing to the, the pregnancy at this case, that this is a child who is in Mary's womb as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit. As we talk about conception, it's worth taking a moment just to think about the Roman Catholic teaching of the Immaculate Conception, something that many of you have, have, have heard or perhaps been raised on or understood at one time or another. The Immaculate Conception would say that, that Mary's conception was unique, that she was somehow preserved from, we would describe it as a sin nature or original sin from the stain of original sin. Uh, later, Catholic dogma also declared Mary to be privileged by God and not committing personal sin and, and all of that in an effort to protect, if you will, the, the vessel through which the, the, the Messiah, the Savior, is brought to conception and to birth. The case for the Immaculate Conception teaching is built almost entirely around one phrase in Luke chapter 1, verse 28, which is when the angel appears to Mary and in his greeting says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And it is that statement Oh, favored one, that all of the, the, the weight of the dogma is put on. That, that word for favored in the Greek is charis, typically translated as grace throughout the New Testament. And so um, the, the, the idea in some Catholic teaching is it's full of grace, Mary full of grace or endued with grace. What's clear from the text in, in Luke one twenty eight is that the angel is addressing Mary as one who has been shown grace by God, one who has been shown favor from God, one who has received blessing from God, and yet there's nothing here that addresses Mary's conception or that suggests she was sinless. It is, it is quite simply reading something into the text that is not by any means explicit in the text in, in his greeting to her of, O favored one. As a matter of fact, the, the Greek verb that Luke uses here for favor, that, that describes Mary, that the angel uses in speaking to Mary, that same Greek verb, slightly different form, is found in Ephesians 1.6 when Paul is talking about you and I as believers and talking about the state that we are in, what has happened to us as those who have been chosen, predestined, and brought into the, the family of God. And so in Ephesians 1.6, it says that he chose the people to be his own. God did so, it says, to the praise of his glorious grace, and noted it up there, it's the noun, chorus, to the praise of God's grace, celebrating God's grace. That's why he saves us, so that we would praise his grace, with which he has 
Christo blessed us. Same Greek verb there is describing favored one, just a slightly different form, but it's the same Greek verb. In other words, God favored us our, in our salvation, in God rescuing us. God showed us favor, and, and, and I just wanted you to, to see that because it says that God saves sinners for the purpose of bringing praise to his grace, and it is by means of that grace that he graces us, that he favors us, that he blesses us. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are favored by God. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, you have been shown God's favor. What you and I deserve is punishment for our sins. It is God's wrath for our sin, but instead we have been shown grace and favor. And it is that grace or favor that is, is the reminder of the fact that we are sinners in need of it. And, and I would suggest to you that, that Mary is as much aware of this when she's celebrating that, that point in Luke 1 in verses 46 and 47. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary has a need of a Savior just like you and I, just like David did. We are sinners in need of rescue, in need of a Savior who would come and pay the ransom in our place. And so Scripture does not call us to, to venerate Mary. The fact that she is a wonderful example of submission to God and obedience to the will of God is in and of itself yet another testimony of God's grace. Just like when God uses you and I and, and, and we obey and we respond in submission to him, we understand in our hearts that that's not because we're extra special good and, and, and we're just really sharp that day and really right on. It's, it's because of God's sweet grace running into our lives and strengthening and equipping us to serve him, to be in submission to him. And so the fruit that is born through our lives is the result of God's marvelous favor and his grace in us. So yes, God chose Mary for a unique role in the incarnation of his son, Jesus Christ, but, but we ought not rewrite or rethink the fundamental theology of man's sinfulness in order to try to, to change that. Man, we are all sinners separated from God, and that comes from nature, from our own conception. And Mary was not sinless, and she's not considered in Scripture a mediator between us and God. Uh, those, are, those are essentially man-made ideas taken from a, a, a text or two and trying to build a case off of that. So we've talked about Mary. Let's, let's think about Joseph for a moment. The angel's greeting of Joseph is interesting. He doesn't say, so Joseph, carpenter, or Joseph, Nazareth. What does he call him? Joseph, son of David. So there it is again. There's, there's this whole genealogy that we saw last week that Matthew starts with. The angel's greeting to Joseph is Joseph, son of David. So immediately we're being brought back to that 2 Samuel 7 promise to David from God that there will be a ruler on your throne forever and his kingdom will be great and I will preserve it. That is now going to be fulfilled in Jesus. And so even in this greeting... He's not just coming to Joseph as an individual, undistinct sort of man. He's saying, Joseph, you are in the line of David. Now, that, that also raises a question for us. Because we know then, from what we've already said, that which is in her is of the Holy Spirit. Joseph has no biological connection to Jesus. He's not actually part of the bloodline. So is there a problem with that? No, not if we recall 
how Israel viewed adoption, and, and more importantly, not if we recall how God views adoption and, and the way God describes adoption throughout the scriptures. Jesus was regarded and treated as Joseph's firstborn son with all the rights of an heir. He was not second class in any way because he was not of Joseph's genealogy or DNA, but he was still in the line and still adopted as Joseph's firstborn son. That was never called into question. Even when there, was, even when there were hints that there was some call into question of Jesus' paternity. So you've got the instance in John chapter 8 when Jesus is accusing the religious leaders of being children of the devil, of being sons of your father, the devil. And one of the retorts from the, the Jewish religious leaders is, we were not born of sexual immorality. One of their comments back to Jesus is, you can call us that all you want, but but. We know a little about you, too. At least that's implied. It's not explicit here that that's what they're saying at that point. But the fact that they answer Jesus by saying, we were not born of sexual immorality, hints at at least the reality that we would assume that there were probably some stories that trailed with Mary and Joseph and this child about the timing of all of this, kind of things that sometimes we think through. We look at a wedding date and a child and nine months and do the calendar and all that kind of stuff. No doubt they did that at that point. And, and, and some of that followed. So there was some sense in which it may have been known that he was not the biological son of Joseph, but that doesn't ever bring into question that he is still the son of Joseph in the line of David. Because as a matter of fact, in John 6.42, it says, they said, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? They still regarded Jesus as the son of Joseph, and that is because we could go back throughout the examples in the Old Testament and see that the Israelites understood adoption, and it was not a second-class relationship of any kind. It was a bringing of the child completely into that family with all of the rights due of sonship, and in this case, of, of the one who was firstborn. As Joseph's son, Jesus was viewed as being of the line of David, and that was God the Father's plan. The same God who now says of you and I in Romans 8, you talk about adoption, he says in Romans 8, we are those who have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. God's spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. You and I are living proof of how God views adoption, how he takes us to be his own. And so Joseph took Jesus as his first son. Jesus receives all of the rights of sonship. And what's stunning is not that Jesus at his incarnation is now adopted into the line of David by a father who is biologically not actually his own, but the marvel is that you and I as sinners are brought into the family of God by the grace of God through Jesus Christ and now able to call God Abba, Father, and Jesus as a brother, as joint heirs with Jesus Christ. That's the marvel, and that's, that's God's proof for us of how adoption looks. What I want to do with just the, the, the rest of our time is that there's three things I just want you to see in this passage that go back to that fundamental question of the identity of Jesus and why the miraculous conception matters, why that bears into accurately identifying Jesus. Number one is this, Jesus was conceived by the Spirit of God. 
He's made that clear. Matthew does when he says in verse 18, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. It's reiterated in verse 20 by the angel. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Matthew is making the point that to Joseph, humanly seemed just extraordinary. We've, we've gone through Christmas after Christmas and we've read this story countless times and we sometimes lose the impact of the miracle. We, we lose the idea of what that conversation between Mary and Joseph must have been like. All we get from scripture is she was found to be with child. Presumably that's some conversation between Mary and Joseph. And, and, and there's no evidence that she goes into any long explanation with him because anything she would have said would have sounded extremely improbable to Joseph as an explanation at that point. And so Matthew twice says that which is conceived in her is from God. He is not the result of normal biological reproduction. Theologian Robert Gramacki says this, if Jesus was born apart from male parentage, then he must be God manifest in the flesh. If he was not virgin conceived, then he was not God. It really is that decisive. It is that clear cut. If the child in Mary's womb was not conceived with male sperm, then he was there miraculously. To Gromacki's point, this is, this is something that is beyond the natural realm. This is supernatural. This is God now accomplishing a work. This child that is in this woman is of God and is, as we will see, God in flesh. The point of verse 20 is that it was God through his spirit who produced the incarnation of Jesus. If eternal supernatural God is to take on flesh and be fully man, it could only happen by supernatural means, by this conception by the Holy Spirit. This means that you and I never could have dreamed of, just as we were singing about a few minutes ago. Who would have ever dreamed this? But if a miraculous conception did not take place, if Jesus was not virgin conceived, then he is an ordinary man who came into existence at conception, just like you and I, and who is bound by all of the limitations of time and space as you and I are and inherits the same sin nature that you and I inherit if he is not conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin. But the miracle of the conception of Jesus is just the start. Jesus would go on and, and, and actually incite the opposition, the, the rage of his opponents by stressing this. He says it in John 8, 58, when he says, before Abraham was, I am. Before your, your forefather in the faith who lived 2,000 years ago, even before him, I already am. I already was existing at that time. And, and of course, that's when they, they want to stone him to death at that point, because they understand that as a claim that to them is blasphemous. It's a claim to be God. The only way Jesus can precede Abraham is if he existed eternally prior to Abraham. And that's what Jesus said. Verse 21 says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Jehovah saves, for he will save his people from their sins. Secondly, if the conception of Jesus was not miraculous, if Jesus was not God in flesh, he could not save anyone, himself included, much less do with the angel told Joseph in verse 21, which is, he will save his people from their sins. The gospel hinges on the miraculous conception. People sometimes ask, does that mean then that the, the, 
the birth of Jesus has to be part of our gospel presentation. I'm not necessarily saying that. I think the gospel is expressing that Jesus Christ is God in flesh, that he died for our sins, that he rose again. But if you come to a place in your acknowledgement of the gospel to say, yeah, but I just don't buy this whole virgin conception thing, then you've got a problem as to the identity of who Jesus Christ is and whether or not sinless God actually took on flesh and sinless God paid the price for our sins. That's what's at stake here. And he says, put yourself now in Joseph's place. This child who is being born to you and Mary will save his people from their sins. How remarkable that must be if you're Joseph. Not only is he going to save people, but he's going to save his people. This child already has a people that are his own that he is coming to redeem, and he will save them, not from circumstances, not from enemies. He will save them from their sins. He's not coming to be a, a, a military general who will free the people from a tyrannical government. He is coming to save his people from their sins. The Jewish people knew all sorts of oppression, but the thing that, that the angel said to Joseph he has come to do is to come to deal with the greatest source of all that is wrong with man, the thing that makes you an enemy of God. That which separates you from God is your sin, mine. It is our sin that separates us. And he says to Joseph, he is, he's coming to save us from our sins, to save his people from their sins, to provide forgiveness of sins. The, the whole Jewish sacrificial system, which was built around understanding that we are sinners, that the sacrificial system acknowledges the fact that we are sinners and we have offended a holy God, the whole sacrificial system is this perpetual reminder that the sacrificing of animals and the blood of bulls and goats, as Hebrew says, ultimately is symbolic but doesn't actually take away any sins. The, the blood of animals does not actually solve the root problem. It points to the need for a sinless perfect sacrifice of a man, one like unto us to give himself, and the only man who can be sinless and who can give himself as a perfect unblemished offering is God in flesh. It is the incarnate one, Jesus Christ. And so that whole Jewish sacrificial system has been pointing to the need for a, a price for sin, and Jesus could only provide that if the miraculous conception is true, and he is perfect God in flesh. Last part of this, verse 22 again, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. This is from Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not till she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Jesus was miraculously conceived by the Spirit of God. It's a result of that conception that he is able to save sinners. And then third, the miraculous conception means that Jesus is literally God in flesh. He is, as Emmanuel says, God with us. Again, imagine if you were Joseph and you were beginning to grasp that this Old Testament prophecy that had a, had a partial fulfillment back in Isaiah's day when Ahaz was king, when there was a, a woman who was, not, who, was, who was a virgin at the time, who would eventually give birth by, by normal reproduction. So there was an understanding that that prophecy had been at least seemingly fulfilled. Now Joseph is understanding that that prophecy had a much deeper meaning, 
that a virgin would conceive and this would actually be God with us. The birth of Joseph's son was the actual incarnation of God. In Jesus, God becomes a man. And so just like we were singing before, Joseph is holding in his arms that baby who is God the son. It is God in flesh. And God is now with us. It's interesting how Matthew specifically highlights this. ESV puts it in parentheses, which is our way of understanding it. The Greek would not have had parentheses, but at the end of verse 23, they shall call his name Emmanuel. And Matthew, sort of just to make sure we got it, says, which means God with us. His Jewish readers did not need the translation at that point. They didn't need somebody to say, remember what Emmanuel means. They understood that. But he's saying that for the the sake of making sure his readers get it that the significance of the conception of this child is miraculous. It is to say this child, this Jesus, literally will be God among us. Now God with us. Eternal, preexistent God in heaven now will take on flesh and be born. The Gospels don't record anyone calling Jesus Emmanuel, but Matthew uses that to make sure his readers get just a little bit more of a sense of the profound mystery that is unfolding in front of them at the birth of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, we are seeing and knowing God as we see and know a man. Stephen Charnock, the Puritan, wrote, What a wonder that two natures, infinitely distant, should be more intimately united than anything in the world that the same person should have both a glory and a grief, an infinite joy in the deity and an inexpressible sorrow in the humanity, that a God upon a throne should be an infant in a cradle, the thundering creator be a weeping babe and a suffering man. The incarnation, Charnock wrote, astonishes men upon earth and angels in heaven. It's one of those stories that you probably go away this morning saying, eh, Pretty much knew all this. I've read it before. I've seen it before. But it, it should do what Charnock says. It should astonish us all over again that God would leave the majesty and glory of heaven for the purpose of saving a people, for coming and, and living among us and giving his life as a ransom. And so now, because God the Son took on flesh and became a man, you and I experience intimate fellowship with him. We worship him not not simply as some distant God on the throne, though he is, and he is worthy of worship as God on the throne, but we also worship him as the man, Jesus Christ, with whom we have an intimate bond through our trust in him. We are rescued from the death we deserve for our sin because God the Son became a man and suffered in our place. He was not a spirit being when he was being whipped and nailed to a cross and, and, and forced to die in that gruesome manner that was a man who was being executed and was taking our sins on himself. We who believe in Jesus will be raised from the dead because Jesus became a man. And when he raised, when he was risen from the dead, he was raised as a man. We talk about the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we see Jesus Christ, we will still see the scars from the nails because of the body of Jesus Christ, because the man has been raised, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Because God the Son became a man, we have a Savior who Hebrews says knows our weaknesses, who knows what it is to be tempted, and who understands and intercedes on our behalf moment by moment. Having taken on flesh, Jesus understands what it is to be tempted, yet he is without sin, but he is able now to minister grace to us moment by moment and intercede for us in our own weakness. Because God the Son became a man, 
we have the promise that God is always with us and will never leave us or forsake us. That's the end of the Gospel of Matthew, right? I will, I, I, I'm not going away. I will be with you always, even unto the end of the age. Because God the Son was miraculously conceived and became a man, Jesus Christ meets us at the crossroads of our two greatest needs. Guilt from sin and fear or despair or loneliness. You could put anything in that second category, but he meets us as Jesus, the one who saves us from our sins, who, who meets our guilt, who meets the curse of sin that is on us and takes it on himself to provide forgiveness of sins. And then the fact that he is Emmanuel means that in our worst moments, in the most difficult things we walk through, in the valley of the shadow of death, when we walk with a loved one, when we suffer ourselves, whatever it might be, God is with us. God is always with us. He is, he is with us. We experience that through his people. We experience that through his word. We experience that through his spirit who is in us. But the, with sureness, the angel said to Joseph, Jesus is Emmanuel. And that means God is with us. He will not leave us. And he is with us now. Let's pray. As we bow in prayer, Lord Jesus, even in speaking your name, we are confessing a truth that we believe you are Savior, and we are coming with gratitude and gladness that you save from sin. Lord Jesus, thank you for being Savior. Thank you for being Jehovah, bringing salvation to your people. Thank you for your sinless life your death on the cross and enduring the wrath of the Father against sin. And then in your resurrection, declaring for us that there is hope beyond this life, that there is forgiveness of sins. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is not yet believing in Jesus Christ as Savior, we ask that your Spirit would do the the, the amazing work that only your spirit could do to open their eyes to see these truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would today, we pray, Lord, be the day that you would bring them to, to surrender, to believe in Jesus as Savior, and to know what it is to be forgiven of sin. Emmanuel, Jesus, we thank you that you are with us. Thank you that you are with your people when they are deployed, when they are moved away, when they are in trials, when they feel far away from connection to even other believers, you are with them. You are with us. Lord Jesus, thank you that in our worst moments, that you have not abandoned your people, that you never leave or forsake, but that through your spirit you are present you who understands our weaknesses intercedes, as Scripture tells us, moment by moment, pleading for us as our joint heir, as our precious Savior. You intercede for us even now, knowing the, the things in our hearts that we are struggling with. Thank you that you are present with us and not abandoning us. 
as we walk through this season thinking about your coming to earth. Help us to, to marvel with wonder as Joseph and Mary did as they responded in obedience to you and to your call. Help us to marvel again at the majesty of the incarnation and its implications for the gospel that we believe. It is in that great name of Jesus we pray.